Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, March 8th, Listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Okay, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I, I'm looking at the list here, and um, the second half of the first hour is going to be a critical discussion that I want to have regarding the Rick Warren, Kingsway document, Chris Lom, kerfuffle, flap, controversy, whatever you want to call this thing. And uh, what's really interesting to me is as I watch how this is unfolding in the media, there is there is an angle to this story that is not being covered. Okay, And uh, what I mean by that is this is that uh, there there are people who are pro Rick Warren who are giving him the benefit of the doubt there's something wrong here uh, it, you know they understand that and so what's happening is is that you know, they're extending a lot of grace to Rick Warren I'm not I'm just not in that camp and the reason being is is that there are two very good reasons to hold and wait and see what develops on this uh, on this Rick Warren Kingsway cover-up controversy. The reason being is this: is that number one, Rick Warren is not your typical pastor. Okay, uh, what uh, what Saddleback Church is involved in in doing is far beyond the reach of the Great Commission, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. And furthermore, we're going to take a look at uh, we're going to be taking a look at Titus chapter one, verse starting at verse five, all the way through Titus chapter two, verse ten, and review the important qualifications for a pastor, for somebody who's teaching in the Christian church. And then we're going to take a ride on the wayback machine. Uh, do y'all remember uh, uh, you know the Rocky and Bullwinkle show? Uh, they they used to have segments on there, uh, Peabody and Sherman, and they would uh, they would hop into the wayback machine and go back and 
And it was, it was I, for, I forget the exact name of the segments. It was like unlikely history or something like that. Um, and I know I'm going to get emails from people saying it was this, it was not that. I okay, I, just work with me here for a second. What we're going to do in the second half of the first hour today is we're going to go into the Wayback Machine and we're going to go back in time to November of 2006. To November of 2006. And if you're not familiar with the events that transpired in November of 2006, as I was reviewing the story, reviewing the audio, reviewing the controversy that erupted in November of 2006 regarding Rick Warren's trip to Syria, um, and uh, he had, you know, let's just say that he had a, a conflict with Joe Farah of World Net Daily, and for good reason. And so what we're going to do is we're going to review that story. And again, this you know I'm tying this biblically back to Titus chapter 1, verse 5, through Titus chapter 2, verse 10. So I'm, I just want to give you a heads up. This segment, going back into the Wayback Machine, is kind of an important piece of this Kingsway cover-up controversy. Because no matter how you slice it, um, two plus two isn't equaling four when it comes to this King's Way, uh, Orange County Register, Chris Lom controversy. Somebody isn't telling the truth. And there are really only three possibilities. There are only three. Okay. Uh, possibility number one, Jihad Turk of the Islamic Society of uh, Southern California lied and manipulated information and passed uh, false information on to Jim Hinch, who then put that into his story, and uh, and that's the reason for the distortion. That's option number one. Option number two, Jim Hinch purposely manipulated information and omitted data when he published the story, and therefore he distorted the truth, and the truth, and uh, as a result of it, the article is factually inaccurate. Or number three. Saddleback is engaging in spin and not telling the truth regarding this Kingsway document. And uh, and as a result of it, they're kind of after the fact trying to clean up a mess that they created. Those are your three options. Uh, now, if you if you come up with a fourth or a fifth option, you know, I'd love to hear it. But I think logically those would be the three most probable scenarios. And so what we're going to do is we're going to, uh, again, we're going to tie this all back to second half of this hour, back to Titus chapter 1, verse 5 through chapter 2, verse 10. And we're going to do just a little bit of work to kind of demonstrate a few things here that there, there's something wrong here and why when a pastor uh, is, is a pastor, he needs to, uh, you know, be qualified according to th these biblical criterion, if you would. So uh, this, the first half, though, of this hour, what we're going to do here in just a minute is we're going to be uh, listening to the <laughs> latest installment from uh, Patricia King's uh, Extreme Prophetic website, um, talking about angels on special assignment. Dun 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 dun. Angels on special assignment. Dun dun dun. dun. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You know, I got to, oh man, I, I'm thinking about sending Patricia King a fruit basket. Symbolically, I think that would fit, but um, yeah, I'm thinking about sending her a fruit basket and a big thank you card. And just, you know, simply writing on the thank you card, 
something to the effect of thank you for being the gift that keeps on giving you <laughs> do just a, i mean just a week after week after week she never fails to deliver and i mean deliver complete uh, absurdity when it comes to christianity it has nothing to do with biblical christianity but man i got to tell you i mean i don't even know if fighting for the faith would be as popular of a program if it were not for the regular installments uh, that we're able to do as a result of the crazy work done by Patricia King. So we're going to be looking at angels on special assignment. Uh, then what we're going to do uh, after that is uh, there's we have an Elephant Room 2 update. And uh, there are now three, three uh, churches that formerly were in Harvest Bible Chapel that are no longer part of Hi- Harvest Bible Chapel as a result of uh, James McDonald in Elephant Room 2. So uh, we're going to be looking at that story, kind of you know, talking about it uh, shortly. And then, like I said, second half of this hour, we're going uh, to be doing a little bit of a biblical study and going into the Wayback Machine. And I'm going to remind you of a story that, uh, b- that broke on WorldNet Daily in November of 2006 that I think is important to keep in mind here. And then in uh, hour number two, we're going to uh, be listening to a, a Pastor Psy three-peat. Now, I, I've, done a, I've done a Pastor Psy twin spin, but I've never done a Pastor Psy three-peat. So we're going to be listening to three short, and I mean short, sermons uh, by uh, Pastor Psy Van Manen uh, from, uh, from Canada. And, uh, and they're just fantastic and, you know, just enriching to the soul. I, I I needed a little bit of a break from the bad sermons, so you know I, I hope you don't mind me putting a, you know, like some good sermons into the mix from time to time, in order to, you know, just anchor us back in reality a little bit because of the crazy things that we constantly uh, have to deal with and cover here on, in the normal day to day broadcasting here at Fighting for the Faith. So with all of that, we're going to dive into the program proper. Here we go. Okay, so that's our update music for the XP Media Gang. That would be Patricia King and Company. And uh, the the latest installment from Patricia King's uh, website, which you can find at ExtremeProphetic.com. That's right, ExtremeProphetic.com. The name of the video is Angels on Special Assignments. Um, Here, um, I'll... Let Patricia King explain to you. Over the last number of years, the Holy Spirit has been highlighting teaching in the body on the subject of the supernatural realms and dimensions of the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. You're, you're blaming all that on, the, on God the Holy Spirit. I don't, I don't think he wants to be left holding the bag or uh, take, take the hit or the blame for any of that. It, it's like it, it's been everywhere you've gone. There's been been a highlight on that like the glory realm and the, the yeah we never talk about that at our church the third heaven and yeah uh-huh and angels and demons and everything that's out there and that those come up from time to time especially in a church that works its way through the biblical texts yeah they those subjects come up but god the holy spirit highlighting it invisible dimension of the kingdom of god and it's been an exciting time because oh i'm sure as the holy spirit has been highlighting teaching there's been more and more visitation and mm-hmm. 
<laughs> more and more visitation. Got it. Throughout the uh, uh, Word of God, you know, as you examine the scripture, you'll see that there's certain times within uh, church history and biblical history where God would release angels on special assignments mm -hmm. to bring his word or his empowerment to his people, to bring protection, to bring insights, and especially at real strategic times. For example, of course, um, when... Uh now, notice how this is being set up, especially during strategic times. So apparently... You know, kind of the subtext of this video is, is that, well, this is a very strategic time, almost biblical. Okay. Uh, the angel Gabriel went to uh, Zachariah and Elizabeth, uh, letting them know that um, John the Baptist would be uh, brought forth to pave the way of the Lord. And then, of course, Gabriel uh, visited Mary to tell her about um, the impregnation of the Holy Spirit that would produce through her life um, in, in God, the Messiah. Uh-huh, yeah, and, and you know, I remember your teaching on this a couple of weeks ago that apparently God was ready to impregnate a bunch of women again. <clears throat> and I mean, that was very, very strategic. So those angels were on special assignments. And sometimes in our study of... Mm -hmm. They were on special assignments. Why do I feel like I'm going to have a Fighting for the Faith gratuitous musical interlude? Okay, now walk in slow motion. And, you know, with that kind of like stern look on your face and, you know, kind of get the swagger thing going on so that you can, you know, you are on special assignment, Mission Impossible. Gotta admit, um, this doesn't look as good if you're like overweight like me, but, you know, just try it anyway. You know, I, I, when I play this, I picture myself, you know, with a 28-inch waistline and, you know, like really, yeah. Anyway, <clears throat> sorry, just gratuitous fighting for the faith musical interlude there. We continue with Patricia King. Here we go. Angels, we, we think, okay, well, you know, um, what do they look like? What are they like? And in our glory school teaching, we have a, a whole lesson. Oh, yeah, I've heard it. On the subject of angels and their assignments and the different types of angels and, and what they do, the works of angels. and Total distraction away from the gospel, by the way. And, and it's a great study. And of course, in this little devotion, I'm not going to take time to go into the fullness of all of that. But um, angels have very, very specific assignments. And I believe that God is showing me right now that you I believe God is showing me right now. Run for the hills. You are going to receive fresh visitation of angels because... I'm glad I'm not going to receive any stale visitations of angels. I mean, I prefer the fresh kind myself because, you know, every time I'm visited by an angel... You know, I've, you know, it happens all, all the time, apparently. But, you know, the stale ones, they just kind of leave you just going, yeah, that, that didn't taste so good. 
So I'm just, I'm glad we're getting fresh visitations because, you know, I prefer fresh vegetables. I prefer, you know, fresh produce and fruit and things like that. I'm, I'm not into dehydrated things. And, you know, I, I don't exactly like canned foods and the, and the preservatives there. You know, I prefer the fresh thing myself. So if, if, we're gonna, if I'm going to have a, a visitation from an angel, a fresh one is, well, preferred. There's going to be empowerment in your life by the Spirit of God and assignments given to you that you are going to need help with. Uh-oh. I'm going to get an assignment. I knew it. Oh, see, I, I this this gratuitous Fighting for the Faith musical interlude was right on. Are you ready for your angelic assignment? Feeling important in a heavenly kind of way? Okay, back to uh, Patricia King. Sorry, sorry, sorry. You know, I just have a tendency to do that. You know, you, you get me going on these musical interludes. And uh, okay, back. Now we were just in a a ministry meeting not long ago, mm-hmm. where um, there was a need in our ministry, and it was regarding distribution of different materials that carry the gospel. And so, as we were praying into it and say, Lord, show us the keys. How can we? better distribute your word how can we get your word out in a better way and as well you know <laughs> i could give you an answer to that question like right here right now uh it would involve you actually putting all this silly supernatural stuff aside um then the, uh, the claims of visitations and traveling up to heaven and you know in drinking from the heavenly wine cellar and all that kind of stuff and actually you know Preaching and teaching God's word in context and focusing on, on in on Christ and Him crucified for our sins—that seems to be the thing that's always missing from these videos, week in and week out. We're praying into that. The Lord showed me. He said, "I want you <sighs> to call forth an acceleration of angels into your ministry, specifically ones that will help distribute the word and take it into greater places." Uh huh. Right. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to do that. You inspired me to do that. I'm going to do that. And so um, I went. Notice she's inspired the same way that the apostles were inspired to, you know, to write the New Testament. Before the Lord, I said, Lord, I thank you for this inspiration that you've given me. And now, according to your word, I call forth angels of distribution. Angel- All right, distribution angels. Never heard of such a thing, but I'm glad they exist. Yeah, I have a few things I'd like to distribute. You will send from your. I wonder if you can use those like during church, you know, like, you know, to distribute the, the, the weekly bulletin. Heavenlies into our midst as a ministry to distribute the word of God. And I could just feel the favor of the Lord on it. So now. Really? We have extra angels assigned to our ministry to help take the word further than it could have ever been taken before. Uh-huh. <laughs> really? Uh, can, can you quantify any of that extra, you know, supernatural, spiritually um, distribution going on as a result of these extra angels you have floating around? The word is being distributed in this year in greater dimensions than ever before. How many dimensions are they being distributed in? in the entire course of our ministry because we have angelic help now 
Oh man. Um, boy. Yeah. I, 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 I don't know if this is insanity. The result of like Dame Bramage as a result of, you know, excessive drug use or something, but good night. This is crazy. Bob Jones told me years ago that when God assigns angels to you, uh-huh. they're with you for life because the script. Oh, right. Yeah. So if you get an angel, it's with you for life. I'm glad he knows that. You got a Bible verse that says that? Scripture says um, that the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. In other words, if he. <sighs> really? Gifts you with an angel to be on assignment with you, it's not going to leave you the next day. It's with you for life. And when you proclaim the word of God, it activates the angels because. So you need, need, I did not know that they needed to be activated. You know, like, you know, y'all, when you, you, you open up a a bank account, you know, and they they send you a debit card, you know, one of those, uh, you know, Visa or MasterCard debit cards that you use to buy groceries with. And, you know, when the card arrives in the mail, you know, you got to call in and activate it. So. So here's the deal. If God sends, you know, some distribution angels to to you, you know, to help distribute uh, your message into different dimensions, um, you got to remember that you got to activate them first because, you know, otherwise, even though they're attached to you, like for life, if you don't activate them, you know, you can't really tap into their their distributing power that they have for the other dimensions of getting the message out. According to Psalm 103, verse 20, they carry out the voice of the Lord's word, the commandment that your voice carries. And so we have these angels with us for life now, for the life of this ministry that will continue to partner with us. The Lord's going to give you specific angels. And what I'd like to invite you to do is to just settle before the Lord, spend some time with him. Yeah. Um, wait on him and say, God, what assignment, what fresh assignment do you want to give me in you? And what angels do you want to assign? Because he's going to assign angels to you to work with a special assignment he gives you to fulfill. Uh-huh. And when- Your special assignment, should you choose to accept, will include having angels. Assigned to you for life. They will help you distribute your message into other dimensions. Have no idea what that means. But God wants to release them. And then you got to activate them for your special heavenly assignment. And remember, as you walk outside, walk with that swagger and slow motion, with this theme song running in your head, knowing that you have heavenly angels assigned to you for your special assignment. You know, I think I'm just going to go to a break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback 
fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can follow me on Facebook. Facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or Twitter at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Because only good theology leads people to heaven. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh. sacked the choir, and put Damn. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision. And ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to record are four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll I'll come in again. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian shirts. Oh, damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects no. Nobody expects the um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know. I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who yeah, do chief ex- weapons are our chief weapons are um, purpose, uh, uh, vision. Okay. And- okay. Stop. Stop that. Stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah 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 blah. Youth pastor Rick. Read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now, how do you plead? Well, we're we're innocent. innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that! Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money 
on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheapo Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, if your pastor's off mission and experiencing vision creep, adding to the Great Commission, yeah, you may not want to stay in that church. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see our famous friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508. Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Look out, look out, pink elephants on parade. Here they come, hippity-hoppity. They're here, and there are pink elephants everywhere. Look out, look out, they're walking around the bed, on the head, clippity-hoppity. Parade, embrace big elephants on parade. What'll I do? What'll I do? What an unusual view. Now, it's been a while since we've done an elephant room update, but, well, there's some fallout. Technicolor pachyderms is really too much for me. <laughs> I am not the type to faint when things are odd or things are quaint, but seeing things you know that ain't can certainly give you an awful fright. What a sight! Chase them away! Chase them away! I'm afraid! Need your eight big elephants on parade! Big elephants! Elephants. All right. Yeah. <clears throat> From the movie Dumbo. Okay. Um, which, by the way, that there was no double entendre meant by that. But uh, he, here's the deal. Um, as of yesterday, uh, March 7th, 2012, there are now three churches that have in the past been part of the High Harvest Bible Chapel Network who have officially announced their disassociation with the Harvest Bible Chapel, specifically as a result of, uh, well, what happened in the elephant room and the direction that Harvest Bible Chapel is going to or heading towards uh, as a result of uh, the leadership and leadership changes that have uh, taken place in the Harvest Bible Chapel network. Um, the first to go was a Harvest Bible Chapel uh, near Detroit, Michigan. Second was last week, Harvest Bible Chapel of Prescott, Arizona. And then yesterday, Harvest Bible Chapel of New Lenox, Illinois, announced their leaving uh, Harvest Bible Chapel. And on their website, they've given a pretty 
uh, elaborate reason uh, reasonings for uh, for disassociating with Harvest Bible Chapel. And I, I want to read this uh, so that you all can hear what's going on. And here's the deal. I'm thankful for uh, pastors who still believe that sound doctrine and the truth matters more than unity. Now, what, what I mean by that is this, is that we don't really truly have unity if it's not unity around truth. And so when it comes to figuring out which is worse, what would be the worst scenario? A break, a schism, or heresy? The answer is heresy is worse than schism. Uh, yeah, and I think the Bible kind of clearly lays this out for us anyway. But uh, the uh, pastors of Harvest Bible Chapel, Lenox, Illinois, write, uh, An important message from the elder board of Harvest Bible Chapel, New Lenox. Our church began on January 1st, 2003 as Cornerstone Church with the purpose to glorify God by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to our community. On October 2nd, 2005, we joined with Harvest Bible Fellowship and became Harvest Bible Chapel, New Lenox, uh, and uh, we were excited to be uh, Harvest Bible Fellowship's first transition church. We have enjoyed many good good times of fellowship and growth since our partnership with Harvest Bible Fellowship. God has worked in our midst as we have determined to preach the Word of God, to call men and women to faith and repentance by the enablement of the Holy Spirit, and to trust God to do His work of drawing them and to saving uh, to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ by his grace and for his glory. 1. Decision to dissociate with Harvest Bible Fellowship. As the elder board of HBCNL, that would be Harvest Bible Chapel New Lenox, uh, we now come to a significant moment of change in regards to our affiliation with Harvest Bible Fellowship. Over the past year and a half, the elders of HBCNL have sensed an increasing shift away from the convictions and philosophy of ministry that were in place when we joined Harvest Bible Fellowship in October of 2005. In light of these concerns, we are disassociating from Harvest Bible Fellowship effective March 31, 2012. We will then assume our previous name held from January 1, 2003 until October 2, 2005, Cornerstone Church, and continue to serve the Lord together as an independent church. A. Harvest Bible Chapel Ministry new distinctives that we oppose. In order to be clear, greater detail concerning our differences with Harvest Bible Fellowship is necessary, though we are not accusing Harvest Bible Fellowship or Pastor James McDonald of abandoning the faith. We are convinced that they are they have drifted into error in a number of key ministry areas. That drift can be evidenced by at least three major changes in their convictions and philosophy of ministry. One, uh, a growing personality-slash-celebrity pastor-centered ministry. The elder board of HBCNL is troubled by Harvest Bible Fellowship's commitment to the establishment of multi-sites, also called video campuses in Chicagoland, with Pastor McDonald projected weekly on the video screen as the lead preacher. Multi-sites minimize the gifting of the Holy Spirit for vocational uh, pastor slash teachers to exercise live teaching and preaching, personally shepherding the flock and directing practical spiritual oversight. The multi-site model is foreign to the biblical model of ministry in the New Testament, as pastors and elders are told by Peter to, quote, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. See First Peter chapter two, uh, chapter 5, verse 2. 
Our observations of Harvest Bible Fellowship indicate that a corporate mentality is in place that seeks to promote Pastor McDonald in a way that we cannot support. Number two, James McDonald's association with pastors who hold to errant theologies. We do not oppose pastors having friendships with those who are not genuinely regenerate. As long as the goal is to be a strong voice for the gospel to the unregenerate minister. However, we are deeply concerned that Harvest Bible Fellowship has been disrupted by associations and influences of men who hold to errant theologies and ministry distinctives. A number of those associations include, quote, pastors, unquote, given over to a hybrid prosperity-slash-empowerment-slash-love-over-doctrinal-precision posture. The resultant troubling actions, decisions, and statements from Pastor McDonald demonstrate the negative impact of those associations. For example, Pastor McDonald allowing prosperity teacher Stephen Furtick to preach at Harvest Bible Chapel Rolling Meadows in August 2011 is something that would not have happened five years ago at Harvest. Another example of influence that Pastor McDonald's statement, quote, I am also excited to hear him, Empowerment Prosperity Gospel teacher T.D. Jakes, state his visions on money, which may be closer to Scripture than the monasticism currently touring the Reformed world, Associations have brought about harmful influence. Further, despite Pastor McDonald's claim to the contrary, the large majority of the public's perception of associations with errant pastors is that there is there is endorsement in belief and mission. And third, lack of discernment in the elephant room discussions. It was learned in the fall of 2011 that the January 25, 2012 Elephant Room 2 ER2 conference would host T.D. Jakes as one of the seven pastors invited to form a discussion panel. The conference was intended to address difficult ministry topics with the seven pastor panel. The announcement of T.D. Jakes' appearance at ER2 was publicly criticized by a number of godly pastors and evangelical leaders. The elder board of HBCNL was also unanimous in our strong disagreement with the Jake's ER2 invitation. Jake's is clearly associated with many TV stations and ministries that are steeped in the false teaching of the prosperity gospel-slash-word-faith movement. That reality in itself made the ER2 invitation alarming. Equally alarming is the fact that Jake's is ordained in the Oneness Pentecostal Church, which denies the Trinity. Rather than believing in the biblically correct view of God as one God eternally existing as three persons, the Oneness Pentecostal Church holds to the errant view that God is one existing as three manifestations. The Oneness Pentecostal view denies the biblical view of the Trinity, denies the co-eternality, coexistence, co-equality of the Son and the Holy Spirit with God the Father, and instead claims that one God shows up in history in three different manifestations. When given the opportunity, the Orthodox pastor must confront unbiblical teachings and doctrines. Quote, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom to preach the word. This is quoted from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. A large segment of the evangelical church has drifted away from strong adherence to biblical doctrines. Sadly, 
denigrating the precise and clear explanation of those doctrines. The current thinking among many preachers is that doctrinal precision should be laid aside and love should be the priority in the church of Jesus Christ so that unity would be attained. Well, the opposite is true. A high regard for biblical truth and the guarding of doctrinal precision is the basis of unity. As the Lord Jesus Christ prayed, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. See John chapter 17, verse 17. The truth of the scriptures clearly defined is the highest expression of love for the listener. Strict adherence to biblical truth and doctrine, not doctrinal leniency, brings about the unity for which the Lord prayed. Both Pastor Driscoll and Pastor MacDonald failed to address Jake's prosperity gospel teaching at ER2. In fact, Jake's prosperity gospel teaching was not publicly questioned or addressed at all. The reason for ignoring that entire area of false teaching at the ER2 is unknown, since we were told that we would be hearing about Jake's view on the subject. During the ER2 session with Pastor McDonald and Pastor Driscoll, Jakes stated that he was not comfortable with the orthodox term persons or the, modal, uh, or the modalistic term manifestation. Specifically, Jakes stated, my doctrinal statement is do no different from yours except for the word manifest instead of persons, which you describe as modalist, but I describe as Pauline. Jakes then proceeded to make a case for the validity of the term manifestations to describe the Godhead based on 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. However, the phrase Jakes referred to, he was manifest in the flesh, found in 1 Timothy 3.16, is not referring to the essence of the triune Godhead, but rather explains the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was deeply troubling that none of the other six pastors in the ER2 panel challenged Jake's incorrect interpretation of 1 Timothy 3.16. Jake's view on the Trinity is not only deficient, it is outside the realm of orthodoxy and can only be labeled as heresy. Jake's urged that we not be too caught up in those issues which were surrounded in mystery. Yet we read in Scripture that we must, quote, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Though we are called to speak to the lost, the church is warned to never welcome the false teacher into any gatherings so that his words are given any type of legitimacy. Quote, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. Do not give him a greeting, for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Second John chapter, uh, verse 10 and 11. The Bible is clear about the stance one should take towards false teachers. T.D. Jakes' stated position on the Godhead is not an orthodox view of the Trinity. Jakes attempted to defend his position of the Trinity using language that is unique to the modalist who denies the Trinity. No Trinitarian is uncomfortable with the word persons to describe Father, Son, and Holy Spirit of the one God of the Bible. Jakes' position on the Trinity ultimately is not the issue. Rather, the problem is Harvest Bible Fellowship and Pastor MacDonald not correcting or rebuking the false teaching presented in ER2. Pastor MacDonald's doctrinal tolerance and leniency before, during, and after the ER2 is at the heart of our departure from Harvest Bible Fellowship. Pastor MacDonald's subsequent defenses of the ER2 on his website and on Moody Radio lead us to conclude that this change in direction established is part of the future ministry of Harvest Bible Fellowship. Grievously, doctrinal leniency and disregard for proper theological examination from the pastors present marked the event. B. 
We have addressed our concern with the leadership of Harvest Bible Fellowship. We addressed our concerns with Kent Shaw and Bill Molinari on two separate occasions and also had additional conversations. We expressed to them our deep disappointment with the Elephant Room 2. We repeatedly expressed the clear violation of Scripture that was taking place by giving T.D. Jakes a platform to espouse his errant theology concerning the Trinity and the false gospel and prosperity and empowerment that marks his ministry. During all meetings, both Kent Shaw and Bill Molinari were gracious and brotherly. Although the desire to work out our difficulties with Harvest Bible Fellowship was present, it became clear that we could not continue to partner with Harvest Bible Fellowship as directed by Pastor McDonald. So what is our future direction? In light of the decision to withdraw from Harvest Bible Fellowship, um, we are going to be an independent church. Our conviction is that we remain independent with no denominational affiliation at this point. That decision does not mean that we will never form an association with a fellowship of churches in the future, but at this time we will remain an independent church and we will have a, quote, new name. Our new name will be Cornerstone Church, our original name, when we began the ministry in 2003, the belief and mission of Cornerstone Church will be given over to the authority of the inspired Word of God, the grace of our Lord, and we are deeply committed to declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. We will, through the ministry of the Word, prayer, and the work of the Holy Spirit, we will inform the community that we have changed our name and will continue to meet in the same place, continuing to seek to obediently minister the Word and reach out to the lost for the sake and glory of Christ." Please pray for our church as we continue to minister and that God will be glorified in all that we do and say. Pray also for Pastor James McDonald and Harvest Bible Fellowship that they would be attentive to the Holy Spirit and to the Word of God. Sincerely in Christ, Pastor Arvid Svendsen. And the elder board also signed as well. To which I must say amen and amen. I think they have their priorities straight. And I think what they did is the right thing. Unity around doctrinal leniency, unity around people who do not hold orthodox views of the, of the Trinity, that's not biblical unity. In fact, the Bible expressly and clearly forbids it. And I'm thanking the Lord for bold and brave and courageous men who are willing to stand for the truth and to disassociate formally with people who will not have their consciences bound by the clear teaching of the Word of God. Moving along, uh, do you all remember uh, the Peabody and Sherman uh, uh, segments that would appear on the Rocky and Bullwinkle show? Well, here's the music. Yeah, that's the uh, opening music for the Peabody and Sherman show, which is famous for their Wayback Machine. They they travel through history. Anyway, what we're going to do right now is we're going to travel back in time. We're going to travel back in time. And before we travel back in time to the year 2006, and don't worry, you don't need to get to 88 miles an hour to do this. Using the, uh, the, the miracle of modern technology and the Internet, we will be able to transport you back in time to the year 2006 without you even leaving the comfort of the current chair that you are in. 
Okay, before we do that, though, what I want to do is I want to look at the biblical qualifications for a pastor laid out in the book of Titus. Some particular things I want to point out to you, and what I want to basically point out overall is this this idea of why biblical qualifications for a pastor matter. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about mission creep, or vision creep, if you're a seeker-driven guy, and then we're going to go back in time to November of 2006 to look at a controversy that I think is related to the current controversy that exists with Rick Warren and the King's Way document. Okay, well, the King's Way document cover-up. Uh, you know, the question is, is it a cover-up? What's going on there? But if you have your Bible, flip on over to uh, the Epistle of Titus, chapter 1. I'm going to start at verse 5, and I'm going to continue on through chapter 2, verse 10. Here's what it says. The Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, states, quote, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, see the first qualification? If anyone is above reproach, it's an important qualification. The husband of one wife, his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Second time it's stated, okay? Must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold to the to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. By the way, that letter that we just read from the Harvest Bible Fellowship pastor, Arvid Svensson, he, 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 he demonstrated this ability in spades in his letter, okay, which, you know, props to the elders and the pastor of uh, Harvest Bible Fellowship in New Lenox. Coming back, though. Verse 10, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, and they must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. Well, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderous or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respect to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. 
bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Okay, so fantastic section of Scripture, recurring theme. Pastor, elder, must be above reproach, teach sound doctrine, um, and, you know, and you know, above reproach. Did I mention above reproach? Te- teach sound doctrine, sober-minded, self-controlled, all that kind of stuff. Now, what is the biblically stated mission of the church? This is found in Matthew chapter 28. Let me review it for you because this all kind of plays into this. Okay, Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, starting at verse 18, um, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Make disciples of all nations, baptize, teach. This is what the church is called to do. This is the mission of the church. Now, let me ask a question that might seem obvious, but in today's American evangelical context, it's uh, it really is kind of lost here. Does an individual pastor have the authority or the right to having his own private mission for his church? Answer, no, and it's not his church anyway. The church belongs to Christ. Each pastor is a under-shepherd of the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. And so if you've ever spent any time in the corporate world, I'll just, I'm going to use a, an example for those of you who've worked in the corporate world. There is, a, there is a concept that occurs in the corporate world that people warn about, well, quite a bit. It's called mission creep um, or scope creep. And here's the idea. is If you've ever done any project management or worked in a corporation, it's really easy for an organization, a work group, a project group, um, or even an entire company to get off topic, so to speak. And they do this by adding things into the mission of the organization or the group or the whatever that don't exist within the, the original confines of what the organization is supposed to do. And so when that happens, you find that the, the, the company, the organization, the work group, more and more is producing less and less that is of any value. Why? Because they're trying to do all kinds of things when they're not called to do all kinds of things. They're called to do very specific things, but those specific things become diluted and watered down by other ideas that, rather than being shot down, are somehow tried to be grafted onto this particular company or work group or whatever. And as a result of it, they there's in fact you could probably look it up on the internet. Type in scope creep or mission creep, and there's articles written about this. When you go to business school, uh, this is one of the things that uh, they they warn you about in leadership classes and things like that. You want to avoid mission creep. So now I come to this question. Okay, in the seeker-driven movement, pastors are told that they are to receive an individual unique vision and mission for their particular unique congregations. These specific, tailor-made, unique missions and visions oftentimes have elements that have nothing to do with what God's Word has stated as the mission for the church. 
making disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching all that Christ has commanded. Okay, as a result of it, um, individual pastors are, you know, to the degree that they're engaging in these other unique visions and missions that they think are coming from God, are in effect uh, experiencing ecclesiastical mission creep. Okay, and I think a poster person for that would be Rick Warren. And what I mean by that is this, is that Rick Warren, what is he most famous for? Is he most famous for preaching sound doctrine? Well, no, actually he's not. He's very famous for being somebody who plays fast and loose with the biblical text and comes up with some pretty unique interpretations of biblical passages, which is all made possible by his basically constant and habitual ripping of verses out of context and then citing them from multiple translations and paraphrases. In other words, Rick Warren is not known for teaching all that Christ has taught us. Instead, Rick Warren is also known for a pragmatic approach to preaching, which has some very unique and, um, well, historically never-before-seen ideas regarding the purpose of preaching. But on top of that, Rick Warren is also famous for being a pastor to pastors in the seeker-driven network, and and also he's very famous for his peace plan. Okay, Rick Warren has got his hands into all kinds of things that I would argue uh, make it so that you one could argue that the agenda of Saddleback Church is not focused like a laser beam on what Christ has commissioned the church to do, make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching all that Christ has commanded, but instead they are they've got a spectrum of agenda that are unique to Saddleback Church that you can't find anywhere else in the visible church, especially when it comes to Rick Warren. And in some ways one might argue that Rick Warren and his peace plan um, has made himself into something of a um, of a diplomat, an international diplomat, sticking his um, himself into world affairs and things of that note. Okay, and I would also argue uh, for you know for each and every denomination that isn't associated with the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, one can make the case, especially you know, a, a couple of years ago. I used to tell people privately that Rick Warren was an unelected and unimpeachable um, uh, district president in the in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, the congregation that I'm a member of. And what I meant by that is is that Rick Warren, by using the business world and out there selling his knowledge based products that are based on the ideas of Peter Drucker, um, has basically created the purpose driven church network. And there's hundreds of thousands of churches involved in that network, including churches within the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. And one of the things I've noted is that those congregations who have gone purpose-driven in the Missouri Synod, uh, the person they look to first is not their district president when it comes to guidance over polity and, and things like that within their congregation. The person they look to first is Rick Warren. So Rick Warren, whether I like it or not, is an unelected, unimpeachable district president within the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and stays so to this day because his influence is at that level. Okay, Some might even argue that, uh, you know, that Warren's power within the Missouri Synod is only rivaled 
by uh, Matt Harrison, the president himself. So you, you get what I'm saying. But see, here's the question I have is that is that what Rick Warren is supposed to be doing? Is is he on mission or has he added some other stuff? Now, keep in mind the qualifications that I read say that a pastor or an elder or an overseer must be above reproach. And now let's travel back in time. I've uh, enlisted the help of the uh, Doc Brown and the flux capacitor. Uh, from the Back to the Future movies. And uh, what I'm going to do here, here, let's uh, pull up the time circuits, and uh, let's type in the date, and uh, the date and month and year. We want 11-16-2006. And let's, well, the story came out at 1 in the morning, but I don't want to be there so early. Let's shoot for, uh, let's go for 11 a.m. in the morning, enter. All right, time circuits are set. And uh, now let's uh, get, get, let's uh, <clears throat> hang on a second here, folks. You might want to put your seatbelt on. Let's see if we can get this thing up to 88 miles an hour and travel back in time. Hold on, here we go. go uh-oh <laughs> running low on plutonium i'll have to fix that later all right uh, well the lengths i go to here too you know uh, bring you back in time i mean it's obviously quite an ordeal but anyway um i am now in uh, the year 2006 you are with me here too as well it's uh, november 16th 2006 and we're at the world net daily website and the headline uh written by Joseph Farah, who runs World Net Daily and is a famous uh, conservative uh, news guy and commentator, the headline reads, The Purpose-Driven Lie. Now, what I'm about to read is super relevant in light of uh, the current state of upheaval um, in Syria right now. Okay, But back in November, November 16th of 2006 to be exact, Joseph Farah wrote, quote, Rick Warren wrote me this morning to protest this column. He claims he didn't say anything he was actually quoted as saying by the official, official press in Syria. However, in a video posted on YouTube but removed today, he says Syria, quote, does not allow extremism of any kind, unquote. Farah then says, in fact, Syria is one of the, in many ways, the number one sponsor of terrorism in the world. Farah then continues, for a long time, I've held off criticizing megachurch leader Rick Warren, author of the best-selling book, The Purpose Driven Life, even though I have been sorely tempted. When he joined up with the now-disgraced National Association of Evangelicals leader, Ted Haggard, to suggest man-induced global warming represented an impending calamity, I didn't say too much. I questioned it, but I let it go. When he joined Haggard again... In writing an open letter to President Bush urging government action to fight global poverty, I didn't say a word, even though I thought it ironic. After all, it's the church's responsibility to help the poor, it's not the government's responsibility. But now that Rick Warren has traveled to and provided legitimacy to 
a hostile foreign government presided over by a brutal fascist dictator who hates Jews, threatens Israel, subverts neighboring Lebanon, imprisons and terrorizes its own citizens, and even kills them in massive numbers when they stand up and revolt, now I have to denounce this imposter in the strongest terms possible. It's my biblical mandate to do so. Other Christians may be holding back, waiting to hear Rick Warren's explanation for his behavior in Syria. Some are cautiously suggesting that accounts of his activities there may have been distorted by the controlled press. Some want to give him the benefit of any doubt. I'm going to give it to you straight. Rick Warren had no business traveling to Syria and being used for propaganda purposes by Bashar Assad the terrorist-supporting president. There are only two possibilities to explain what happened. One, he made the outrageous statements attributed to him by the Syrians for which he should be ostracized, maybe even tried for treason, in my opinion. Or two, he, he didn't make the statements or mis, was misquoted, in which case he has placed himself in the predictable position of being a useful idiot for the Islamo-fascist regime, regime in Damascus. Take your pick. Neither option is very attractive. So here's what we know now. The official press in the Syrian police state is suggesting Warren is taking sides with Syria against his own country with regard to issues in the Middle East. The reports indicate we can soon expect Warren upon his return to the United States to lecture Americans about our abusive role in the region. The Syrian newspaper Umar Jafdali quotes Warren as saying, quote, Washington is wrong not to hold dialogue with Syria, which wants peace. I call the Americans to visit Syria and meet its beautiful people. I will tell the Americans that their idea about Syria does not reflect the truth. Close quote. <clears throat> Farah then writes, Here's what the Syrian Arab News Agency reported. Quote, the American delegation stressed that the American administration is mistaken not to hold dialogue with Syria. Second, quote, Pastor Warren hailed the religious coexistence, tolerance, and stability that the Syrian society is enjoying due to the wise leadership of President al-Assad, asserting that he will convey the true image about Syria to the American people. Warren gave Assad a, quote, memorial drawing to, quote, thank the Syrian people for their efforts exerted for maintaining peace and harmony. Warren was quoted as saying, quote, Syria wants peace and Muslims and Christians live in this country jointly and peacefully since more than a for more than a thousand years. And this is not new for Syria, close quote. He would, in his, in the words of the official news agency, say, quote, tell the Americans that the ideas which have been shaped by Syria didn't reflect the truth and that they have come to Syria t and see by themselves and realize her nice people and visit her wonderful and historical ruins. It was reported he told Syria's Islamic Grand Mufti that there could be no peace in the region without Syria and that 80% of Americans reject what the U.S. administration is doing in Iraq. And then he praised Islamic Christian coexistence in Syria. Farah then notes, If I were a betting man, I would wager that Warren will come home and allege he was widely misquoted. He probably was. I hope he was. But there's the problem. When you place yourself in the position of being used and are used, whose fault is it?
So here's the deal. Back in November of 2006, Warren traveled to Syria. He made statements, statements that were picked up in the Syrian news and forwarded on that people here in the United States picked up on and challenged uh, Warren regarding. Okay, Same day, okay, the same day, uh, November 16th, 2006, another story appeared at World Net Daily. The headline read, Mega Pastor Warren denies praising Syria. And he, um, quote, I said nothing of the sort, he says. I don't pretend to be a diplomat. Dateline Washington, Mega Church Pastor Rick Warren is adamantly denying that he praised Syria on his recent trip, which he describes as a favor to his Muslim next door neighbor. Warren, author of the best-selling book, The Purpose Driven Life, visited Syria last week and was quoted by official Syrian news agency as saying the United States should have been holding dialogues with Damascus, that Syrian Muslims and Christians coexist peacefully, and the Syrian leadership is responsible for the nation's tolerance and stability. In an email to WorldNet Daily, editor Joseph Farah, who blasted Warren today in his daily column, uh, Warren writes, quote, Joseph, why didn't you contact me first and discover the fact that I said nothing of the sort? The trip was a favor to my next door neighbor. I had nothing to do with policy and was done with the State Department's knowledge. In fact, Saddleback Church declined repeated requests to respond to WorldNet Daily's questions yesterday. Notice... A trend here? Warren added that the State Department had warned him to, quote, expect exactly what Syria did, a PT, uh, PT blast. I don't pretend to be a diplomat. I'm a pastor who just gets invited places, said Warren. However, in a video posted on YouTube but removed today titled Building Bridges, Warren is shown walking down a Damascus street commenting on political and social life in Syria, saying, quote, Christians and Muslims get along with each other. Quote, it's a moderate country, and the official government role and position is to not allow any extremism of any kind, Warren says. The reports from the official Syrian news agency included statements that Pastor Warren hailed the religious coexistence, tolerance, and stability that the Syrian society is enjoying due to the wise leadership of President al-Assad, asserting that he will convey the true image about Syria to the American people. Syria wants peace, and Muslims and Christians live in this country jointly and peacefully since more than a thousand, for more than a thousand years, and this is not new for Syria. Warren told Syria's Islamic Grand Mufti there could be no peace in the region with Without Syria and 80% of Americans reject the United States administration's policies and actions in Iraq. The comments attributed to Warren contradict documentation by the International Counterterrorism Organization and the United States State Department of Syria's extensive use of terrorism for its political goals. The ICT said frequent use of the terror weapon has been made by Syria against Lebanon, Jordan, and the Palestinians in an attempt to impose Syrian hegemony over them and bring them into line with Syrian policy. The main Lebanese leaders killed by Syrian proxies were Bashir Gamaliel, who was accused by Syrian propaganda of being a Zionist proxy, Kamal Jumblat, accused of being a traitor and an American agent, 
the ICT said. Saddleback Church, with 30,000 members, was begun by Rick and Kay Warren in 1979 and now has more than 200 ministries in the Orange County area. His popular book, which has sold about 12 million copies, focuses on worship, fellowship, discipleship, ministry, and evangelism, and it tells readers the root is, the, that, the li- that life is not about you and shows how God can enable each one to live for his purposes. Warren is scheduled to preach in North Korea next year. In a letter to his congregation, Warren explained in more detail why he went to Syria, referring to his international peace plan ministry. Quote, our team is on a three-nation peace plan tour, he wrote, after leading peace a peace plan briefing for 44 major Christian missions organizations that we gathered in Atlanta. Our team traveled to Germany where we taught the purpose-driven preaching seminar to pastors and shared the peace plan with about 5,000 church leaders. Right now, we're in Rwanda teaching the purpose-driven preaching seminar and the peace plan to the leaders of denominations. In, in, in between Germany and Rwanda, we visited Syria. Since our trip to Syria had already been misunderstood and attacked, I wanted you to know the real story because you can't believe everything that you read on the Internet. He continued, why Syria? The simple truth is that I was invited by my neighbor. We were talking over his uh, his backyard fence a couple of months ago when my Muslim neighbor, Yasser, said, Rick, you visit so many countries, I want to show you mine. I was touched by his invitation, uh, by this invitation from my friend and promised the next time I'm traveling that direction, I'll visit your home with you. It was a favor for a friend, not a political statement. Quote, when we got to Syria, our first event was a home-cooked meal with 20 of Yasser's family. He wrote, then he showed us many of the sacred Christian sites in Syria, the road to Damascus where St. Paul was converted, Straight Street where the Holy Spirit led Paul, uh, the house where Ananias prayed for his healing, 2,000 years old, the wall where Paul was let down in a basket to escape the Romans, the tomb of John the Baptist, and the oldest Christian church building in existence. Uh, Warren went on to explain that every Christian he met expressed gratitude to the government for protecting their right to worship. Quote, my next door neighbor arranged for me to meet many of the key Christian leaders of Syria, including uh, the Presbyterian pastor who leads the coalition of evangelical churches of Syria, the patriarch of the Greek Orthodox Catholic Church and the patriarch of the Catholic Church and the pastor of the oldest church in the world, he continued. You may be surprised to know that Christianity is legal in Syria and that the government provides free electricity and water to all churches, allows pastors to buy a car tax-free, and appoints pastors as Christian judges to handle Christian cases and allows Christians to create their own civil law instead of having to follow the laws of uh, for Muslims. One city we visited, Malula, is two-thirds Christian. Every Christian I met with expressed gratitude to the government for protecting their right to worship. Honestly, that shocked me. Got a question for you. In light of all of the news and the video that's been coming out of Syria for the past few weeks, the the reports of Christians being lined up and executed in mass in Syria. Does any of this sound even right? Uh-huh. Story continues. Warren explained how his meeting with Syrian President Bashar al-Assad came about. Quote, then my neighbor invited me to meet the president since I often meet presidents of countries we visit. Wow, well-connected neighbor. Quote, I had talked to Franklin Graham of Samaritan's Purse, who had who who has had years of experience with Lebanon and Syria, and asked him what to say. Franklin told me 
Thank, uh, thank the Syrian president for protecting the freedom of Christians and Jews to worship there. After what I had seen in the churches I'd visited, I did just that. Warren said no press covered that meeting, but nonetheless, the Syrian news agency issued a report that sounded like I was some politician negotiating the Iraq war and praising everything in Syria. Of course, that's ridiculous. But it created a stir among bloggers who typically editorialize before verifying the truth. It's ironic that people who distrust Syria... Uh, trust their press releases. By the way, even though this tri- this was just a private trip, we notified our friends at the U- at the United States State Department in advance of our meeting with President Bashar and sought advice. He wrote, quote, they told us that Syria would likely offer press releases after the meeting, which they did. Warren concluded, regrettably, because I praise Syria's welcoming of Christian refugees from Iraq, Palestine, and Lebanon into their country, some bloggers concluded that I approved of everything Syria does. Well, that's nonsense. Syria needs many reforms, but in terms of religious freedom, they are headed. Uh, they are ahead of places like Burma, Cuba, Iran, Iraq, and many others. Warren made no apologies for putting himself in a position to be used by the police state, but he did say, I also know that anyone who speaks publicly all the time is bound to say something dumb every now and then, so I ask your patience and forgiveness in advance, because I'm sure it will happen. Every day I'm amazed that God uses someone as flawed as I am. You should be too. Just don't believe everything you read by bloggers or hear in the media. Interesting, isn't that? I mean, it's just really, really, really interesting. One more story. This story, 10 days later, from November 26th, 2006, by Joe Farah, entitled Rick Warren on Syria, a moderate country. Joe Farah writes, I am much obliged to Bruce DeLay a talk show host at KFAQ 1170 in Tulsa, Oklahoma, for downloading the audio version of Rick Warren's YouTube video recorded while in Syria. Now, keep in mind, Warren has been telling the world he was misquoted by the Syrian press when he extolled the virtues of the totalitarian police state. But before anyone questioned his statement, Warren's Saddleback Church had recorded him as he strolled down a Damascus street explaining what a peaceful and tolerant place Syria really is. As soon as I hotlinked to the YouTube video last week and questioned Rick Warren about it, the church yanked it. I didn't have time to download a copy, but thankfully, one Johnny on the Spot talk show host did. You may not be able to see it, but you can he- at least hear it. Here is a word-for-word transcript of what Warren said in the 50-second video. Quote, Syria is a place that has Muslims and Christians living together for 1,400 years. It's a lot more peaceful, honestly, than a lot of other places because Christians were here first. Quote, in fact, you know Saul of Tarsus. Saul was a Syrian. St. Paul, on the road to Damascus, had his conversion experience, and so Christians have been here the longest, and they get along with the Muslims, and the Muslims get along with them. There's a lot less tension than in other places. It's a moderate country, and the official government rule and position is to not allow any extremism of any kind. That is what Rick Warren said. In fact, would you like to hear him say it? Here's Warren saying it in his own words. Syria 
is a place that has had uh, Muslims and Christians living together for 1,400 years. So it's uh, a lot more peaceful, honestly, than a lot of other places because uh, Christians were here first. In fact, you know, Saul of Tarshish, Saul was a Syrian. And uh, St. Paul, on the road to Damascus, had his conversion experience. And so Christians have been here the longest, and they get along with the Muslims, and the Muslims get along with them. And there's a lot, of, uh, a lot less tension than in other places. It's a moderate country, and the, the official government role and position is uh, to uh, not allow any extremism of any kind. All right, so that's the audio from a, a, a video that was posted on YouTube in 2006 that got pulled. It disappeared when Joe Farah pointed to it in 2006. Thankfully, somebody had the audio. Farah <clears throat> continues, It's not a press release from the Syrian government that Rick Warren can deny. He didn't make these remarks under duress. He spoke these words of his own free will. By the way, this audio clip is not taken out of context. It represents the entire content of Rick Warren and his what his team produced, posted on YouTube, and then removed once I linked to it and questioned him about it in an email. It's not a case of someone twisting his words. Rather, it's a case of twisted ideas expressed in words. Let's analyze the statement carefully. When Warren suggests Christians were in Syria first, he's certainly forgetting the progenitor of monotheism, Judaism. Firstly, Tarsus was not part of Syria, and more importantly, Saul was not a Christian. He was a Jew until that Damascus Road conversion. It's not a technicality. It's more than worth noting that someone who praises Syria, one of the most vicious anti-Semitic regimes in the world, claims Christians, not Jews, were there first. Then more moves into this Muslim-Christian brotherhood sophistry. The only way Christians get along with Muslims is an officially Muslim country is by accepting the role in Islam known as the uh, Dimimi. Think of the Dimimi life as a religious apartheid. It's a good analogy. Christians are not free to evangelize Muslims. In a civil dispute, dispute between a Muslim and a Christian, the Christian's word is less worth less than nothing. Rick Warren demonstrates his complete ignorance of the subtle repression Christians face in the role of Dimimi. Perhaps he hasn't been briefed on the phenomenon by the Council on Foreign Relations from which he claims his expertise on the Middle East. Again, Warren neglects even to mention the Jews, the pathetically small community of Jews in Syria who have historically been subjected to barbaric pogroms to keep its members in line and to give the average Syrian Muslim an artificial feeling of superiority. Less tension? Let me explain how Warren's buddy, uh, dictator Bashar Assad, manages to keep peace and tranquility, the secret police, wiretapping, torture, polit political prisoners, and death squads. By the way, um, who historically has, has who, who has history vindicated at this point? With all the news and the video coming out of the destruction in Syria, was Joe Farah vindicated or was... Rick Warren vindicated. Bashar's father, Hafez, was the master of heavy-handed Big Brother tactics. When the citizens of Hama 
rose up to challenge his authority in February of 1982. Assad sent in Syrian troops to massacre between 10,000 and 25,000 civilians. The town was paved over and marked permanently to ensure that others would learn the terrible lesson. It worked. There's been peace, as Rick Warren would call it, ever since. There's been a, a lot less tension, as he would put it. Lastly, Rick Warren said... It's a moderate country. The official government rule and position is to not allow any extremism of any kind. Where does one even begin answering such a lie? True, the Assad simply crush an extremism that threatens their tyrannical rule, but Syria plays ball with the terrorists by allowing them to use Syria and neighboring Lebanon as staging grounds under the proviso that they do not subvert the Assad regime. That's why Syria serves as the headquarters for more terrorist organizations than any other country in the world, yet experiences little of its own. My goal is not to beat a dead horse with Rick Warren's trip to Syria. My goal is to bring understanding and truth to an issue that has been perversely distorted by Rick Warren. So let's review here. This is an interesting historical factoid. Rick Warren traveled to Syria. Rick Warren made statements that the Syrian government was moderate, didn't allow any extremism. He said statements that were picked up by the Syrian news agencies and broadcast on in, in their papers and on their internet websites. And then Rick Warren, Warren, when challenged about those statements, denied that he made them. And yet Joe Farah knew that he had made them because he saw the video on YouTube. And when he linked to it, the video disappeared. And then Rick Warren sent out a letter to the, to the people at Saddleback Church, basically claiming you can't trust everything you read on the Internet, blaming bloggers for distorting the facts. Weird. Fast forward now, I've ran out of plutonium, so I can't put it in the flux capacitor. We'll just have to walk back to the year 2012. Walk back now with me to 2012, though. The Orange County Register, Jim Hinch, publishes a story about building bridges with Muslims. Notice the same words were used back in 2006. Building bridges with Muslims. And in that Orange County Register story... Jim Hinch noted that in December of last year, that just a few months ago, at Saddleback Church, Jihad Turk of the Islamic Center of Southern California and Abraham Muhlenberg, interfaith pastor at Saddleback Church, hosted an event for Muslims and Christian members of Saddleback to attend, a select number of them. And at that event, a document was discussed. The name of the document the King's Way. According to Jim Hinch, he has a copy of that document. It's five pages in length. And his conclusion after reading it was that, that Saddleback had a new theological position. And that theological position was that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. Right? Now, what has happened since that article was published. Well, Jim Hinch in the original article linked to the Islamic Center of Southern California to their website where there was a photograph of Abraham Muhlenberg and Jihad Turk on the stage at Saddleback Church with a PowerPoint slide behind them 
talking about the Kingsway document. The Islamic Center of Southern California posted that middle of December of last year. And in their assessment, the Islamic Center of Southern California concluded that Saddleback Church had a new theological position, namely that they that they worship the same God or worship one God, right? What happened? The Islamic Center of Southern California's website was changed. The evidence vanished. Notice trend. Then Rick Warren set the record straight and made it clear that he does not believe that Christians and Muslims worship the same God, and then proceeded to blame bloggers for distorting the facts, and he never publicly addressed the King's Way document or the King's Way initiative and referred to it kind of offhandedly as just a mere Bible study. Yet Jim Hinch of the Orange County Register claims, and I've spoken with him privately on the phone about this at length, that, and he also wrote this on his own uh, in the article, that before he went to press, he, he asked to speak with Rick Warren, was denied the ability to speak with Rick Warren. He asked to clarify this, and he spoke with Tom Holliday, associate senior pastor at Saddleback Church, and went through the facts that he found you know, it, for the story, and Saddleback Church said that he understood it correctly. And at that time, Tom Holliday didn't challenge the existence of the Kingsway document, didn't act like it didn't exist, didn't raise his eyebrows and say, what's that? In other words, he said that, yeah, that's correct. That's what we're up to. And when asked about it, it when, when asked if Rick Warren knew about it, Tom Holliday, according to Jim Hinch, said that Rick Warren was fully aware of it, was on board with it. When the story blew up, Rick Warren denied knowledge of it and evidence of it disappeared off the internet. I don't have any other way of viewing this, but I'm seeing a pattern here. Do you see it as well? Same template, same, I mean, the details are different, but the, the way the story unfolds, it's almost identical. Weird though, isn't it? And this is why it's so important that the biblical qualifications for a pastor is laid out in Scripture, specifically in the epistle of Titus, are adhered to. That a pastor must be above reproach, teach what's in accord with sound doctrine. Unfortunately, Rick Warren is not above reproach. In fact, it seems like he's off mission. Because if he really had his nose to the grindstone and was really obsessing with making disciples, baptizing, and teaching all things written in the Word, I don't think he would um, find himself getting in trouble with building bridges to Muslims or making bizarre policy statements that he has to deny that he made, yet there's evidence that he made them in, uh, uh, that, you know, that somebody captured. So we got a problem here. My question is, What's the truth? Who's, who's, who's not telling the truth here?
Because there's really only three options. Option number one is that Jihad Turk of the Islamic Center of Southern California fabricated all of this and manipulated Jim Hinch and told him a story that wasn't true regarding the King's Way document. That's an option. The problem is, is that Jim Hinch says that he fact-checked prior to publishing and spoke with the communications director at Saddleback. I'm assuming that would be David Sean. Um, after the uh, uh, after the, the article was published, and that uh, that the member at Saddleback, the communications director there, said that the story was factually correct, and that was on February 27th. The end of the week, Rick Warren took a different tact. Which is it? So is Jihad Turk lying and manipulating? Or is Jim Hinch really trying to pull a fast one, fabricating the story, making up stuff? Maybe he went to press without ever really checking with the folks at Saddleback and get, and you know doing the fact-checking and didn't do his due diligence. But that seems a little odd because... Um, that type of, of lying rises to the level of libel that would make the Orange County Register legally liable for the, what was put in print. Seems highly unlikely. The only other option is that Rick Warren hasn't been telling the truth. And I would point to November of 2006 and his dust-up with Joe Farah of WorldNet Daily regarding statements that he made in Syria, then denied making, but then was proven via audio that he did make, as maybe evidence that we got a big problem here with Rick Warren, and that he's not telling us the whole truth. What do you think? If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so on my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. You can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We are well into hour number two. When we get back three really good, really short sermons for you. I think you'll enjoy them. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money 
on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheapo Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. We're going we're gonna to be doing a uh, Pastor Cy Van Manen uh, three-peat. It's, it sounds ridiculous, I know, but <clears throat> work with me here. His sermons are short. You know, they say brevity is the soul of wit. I, I think he gets that. Here, let's uh, cue up our sermon review music. the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon comes to us via river bend lutheran church in edmonton alberta canada that's right pastor cy van manen presiding i told you uh, a while ago we were going to be featuring this guy more i love his sermons so the three sermons we're going to be listening to in this order. The first one is entitled Lightning Eyes. The second was entitled Sacrifice of the Sun. The third, The Reality of Death. The first sermon is based on 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. Sacrifice of the Sun is from Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 18. And the reality of death is at Mark chapter 8, verse 31. So without any further ado, here is Pastor Cy Van Manen and his first sermon entitled, Lightning Eyes. Grace and mercy and peace be unto you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The text for today comes from 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 9-12. through 12. When they had crossed the Jordan, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them into pieces. This is the text. Dear friends, When God asked Solomon, ask for whatever you want me to give you, Solomon asked for wisdom from God. That seems wise, pun intended, and yet Solomon was not always wise and ended up following the religious traditions of the women of his household, and this led him away from God. How come God does not come to me and ask me, whatever you want, I shall give you? 
He knows because if he asked me, I would ask for the ability to shoot lightning bolts from my eyes. I know you were thinking, well, pastor, that seems silly. Whatever would you do with that? Well, I would be the only person in the world who could shoot lightning bolts from my eyes, and I could tell the world, God gave me this ability to shoot lightning bolts from my eyes. The church would fill up. People would come from all over to watch me blast targets on the altar. Or we could throw the offering plates in the air and scorch them as they went by. This ability would only confirm that God is real and true. People could easily, easily believe in God as being real if they saw me shoot lightning bolts from my eyes. Sure, it would probably distract from the fact that worship is truly all about Christ and what he has done for us. But our ranks would swell, our coffers would fill, and people would believe Or would they? I mean, as a representative of Christ, I would be careful never to abuse my lightning bolt eyes. Sure, Solomon slipped up, but wisdom is so very easy to abuse. I could use my powers to fight crime. Zap bad guys. Power orphanages. Lower my power bill. And yours. I would not use it to zap someone if they cut in front of me on the white mud. Unless it was their fault while they were driving or didn't have that signed baby on board in the back of their car. I would never be tempted to use it if someone butt in front of me at Walmart or picked on my kids if they were bullying them or if someone spoke poorly of this church or the way I dress or my haircut. (laughs) Maybe it's best God doesn't ask me what I want. Although many people ask the question, well, if God is God, why doesn't he just show himself? If God is God, why doesn't he give you Christians all superpowers? Or give us a sign. I think things would probably go awry if he gave every Christian superpowers, like lightning eyes. And Jesus says of a sign, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign. So why does God not just show himself to the world? In the text for today, we see Elijah drawn up into heaven by a whirlwind. I know I see this text and say, neat, I hope that's how I get to go. But God does not do this kind of thing for no reason. Elijah's course to heaven was set. He was going to heaven. God could have had him just disappear, but he does not. God picks up Elijah in a fiery chariot and horses of fire and transports him to heaven. Why? Well, in Elijah's time, the word of God came through the prophets. But how many prophets were there in Israel? In 1 Kings, after his showdown with the prophets of Baal, Elijah runs for his life. And God comes to Elijah, and Elijah says this to God. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They have broken down your altars. They have put your prophets to death with the sword. And I am the only one left. And now they are trying to kill me too. Now, Elijah was wrong about the numbers, because God tells him that he reserved a remnant for himself of God-fearing people. But there are not many of them. God's word came through these prophets and fell on deaf ears. No one listened to God's word and no one cared. When I preach to you, I reference the Bible. Today I'm referring to 2 Kings. Elijah never referred to 2 Kings. Elijah was in 2 Kings. So the words he spoke were given directly to him by God himself. So if people were going to listen to Elijah, which they didn't, but if they were going to, How would they know to trust his words? Well, God gave Elijah miracles. Miracles to back them up. 
So before Elijah is taken into heaven, Elisha and 50 disciples from Jericho are following. Elijah asks Elisha, what shall I do for you before I am taken? And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit upon me. I would have asked for lightning eyes, but Elisha rightly asks for an increase of faith. This ministry, their ministry is hard with no one in Israel really listening to God's word and Elijah, the top prophet, is leaving. And Elisha knows that it's going to be tough. He's going to need a double portion of God's spirit to get it done. So how does God do it? He shows Elisha. He shows him by carrying his master to the heavens in a fiery chariot. This display was not for Elijah, but for Elisha and the prophets. To embolden them, to raise them up for their work, to carry them on. Matthew records a similar thing in the New Testament. He says, when John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the lame walk. The good news is preached to the poor. That's right. God shows himself through miracles, through acts of power, through the healing of the sick, and through fiery chariots. He did this to build the faith of his people. So why not today? Why doesn't God just show himself to us? Why doesn't he just give me lightning eyes? Besides the obvious abuse of my powers to punish bad driving on the white mud, God has given us something more powerful, much more powerful than fiery chariots and something better than just the healing of our bodies. He has given us that thing which kills and brings to life. He has given us the word of God. On this Transfiguration Sunday, we see Jesus takes his disciples up on the mountain, shows himself as God, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Jesus' divinity shines through his mortal flesh, and God confirms his son's deity, his father's love, and what the disciples should do. He says, this is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. The disciples are emboldened in faith because the word incarnate is among them. They do many miracles throughout their ministries in the coming years, but primarily they get the job done by speaking God's word. Christ shines through his disciples, transforms them, works through them by the power of his spirit through his word. God does the same through us. We have God's word, which is better than lightning eyes or fiery chariots, because today I can tell you, and the spirit confirms it for you, the truth of God's word, and that is this that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who took on human flesh and lived and died so that you might live and never die. Jesus is the Word made flesh who shines through us to bring people to him so that they might live and never die. This day, Tannis had God's name placed on her head and God's Word put in her heart, just like all of you did in the waters of your baptisms, though not as flashy as a fiery chariot, this water and word gives faith, forgives sins, and transports to heaven. For this day, Tannis was given God's gift in these blessed waters, forgiveness, deliverance from death, and the promise of life everlasting. 
Though not as flashy as a fiery chariot, God gives us his very body and blood this day, hidden in with and under the bread and wine to forgive your sins and strengthen your faith unto life everlasting. God comes to you through his word, in his sacraments, to forgive all of your sins and keep you in the one true faith until the day he takes you home. Dear friends, your chariot awaits. It is the passing from this life to the next. Like Elijah, your course is set. Your salvation is secure in God's Son, and your sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God. Amen. And now let us pray. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in and through Christ Jesus unto life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Okay. Here's sermon number two. You'll notice they're kind of short. Entitled, Sacrifice of the Son, based on Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 18. Here we go. Grace and mercy and peace be unto you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The text for today is from Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 18, focusing especially on verse 8. Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. This is the text. Dear friends in Christ, I did a memorial service for a young girl, age eight years old, whose mother was one of our teachers at Dakota Boys and Girls Ranch in Minot, North Dakota. This young lady of eight was playing soccer one day when she came off the field and told her coach she had a terrible headache. After some time, her mother, the teacher at Dakota Boys and Girls Ranch, put her in the car and started off to the hospital. On the way to the hospital, her daughter passed out and never woke up again. The doctor determined she had a massive brain aneurysm and died very quickly once she had passed out in the car. They harvested her organs and sent them to the Mayo Clinic to be transplanted in the bodies of children who needed healthy organs to live. As I prepared for that memorial service, many of the staff came to me and asked questions like, does she have any other children? Can she have any more children? At that time, I didn't really know. I heard later that she said the only comfort she took in the loss of her daughter was this. She said, my only comfort is that in her death, she sacrificed her organs so that other children would live. As I thought about her statement and the questions that people asked about the death of her child, can she have any more kids? I wonder if there is a good answer to those hard questions in the face of the pain of death. If faced with the death of my child, would a yes answer to any of those questions help soften the blow? Would the fact that I had other children help me live with the death of one of my children? The answer is no. Would the fact that I could make more children fill the gap of the children or the child that I have lost? The answer is still no. Would knowing that my child died and sacrificed her organs so that others might live, would it make me feel any better? The answer is still no. Even if my child died and for some miracle God gave me that child back, given back to me alive and whole, it only prolongs the inevitable, that thing that we all must face, that we are dying. We are the walking dead. Our deaths are not noble or sacrificial. 
always, as Scripture says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. Death is a product of my own sin. I die because I sin, and my children and their children's children and their children's children's children will die because of their sin if we get that far. People don't talk about death in this world because they are trying everything they can to avoid it. But the fact of the matter is this. Death is inevitable. If death is talked about, it is discussed in hushed tones and fleeting references because it is not the most popular subject at the coffee house or around the dinner table. In the text for today with Abraham and Isaac, we see an amazing thing going on here. There is going to be a death. The Lord requires one. A sacrifice. But the Lord does not just ask for a usual sacrifice. He asks for an unusual death. He asks for the death of a son. And not just any son of Abraham, but his beloved one and only son. We certainly don't know what went through Abraham's head. He probably didn't ask himself, well, can I have another? This son was born to him in his old age, and Sarah was well beyond her years of childbearing. What we do know is that Abraham did not hesitate to do what was asked of him. He got up early and set about this grisly task without pause. How can that be? How could Abraham possibly do what God has asked of him to sacrifice his one and only son? Was he really going to do it? Was Abraham really going to sacrifice his only son? Yes. Scripture says, then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. So how can Abraham carry this thing out? Well, there's this little statement, this little thing called faith that Abraham alludes to before he and his son get to the sacrificing part. Isaac asks him, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And God did. Abraham trusted. Maybe it was hard for Abraham. We don't know. But we do know that he trusted that God would provide. That in the face of the pain that he was going to go through, in the face of death, in the face of the loss of his one and only son, that God would provide Abraham a way to remain faithful. In the face of death, be it our own or the death of a loved one, God provides the necessary sacrifice to pay the price for us. In Abraham's immediate case, it was the ram caught in a thicket. But for all of us, for us who must face the reality of the pain of death, God did the unthinkable. He did not ask for our sacrifice, but he gave his one and only son, his beloved son to sacrifice himself, to die the death that we deserved. God has provided a way. It is not a way to cope with death. It is not a way for us to deal with death. For God himself has dealt with death, dealt the death blow to death by conquering it once and for all for us on the cross. The ultimate sacrifice was made for sins, our sins, by Christ on that cross. The humiliation of Christ, the spitting upon of him, the beating and flaying of his flesh by the whip, the crown of thorns and the mocking, the bearing of the cross to Golgotha, the nails in his hands and his feet, the pain and the death, all sacrifice for us. 
the death of God's beloved one and only son for children, us who have gone astray. To pay a price that no death or sacrifice of ours could make. No death, not yours nor mine, not your children nor mine could pay. God spared Abraham's son from sacrifice, but did not spare his own son for our sake. Dear friends, what fills the void in the face of the death of a loved one? What calms our fears in the face of our own death? Nothing could replace my children or fill the gap that they would leave. Accept the promises of God. That they shall live and reign with him in eternity. That in death they will receive a better life than I could ever provide for them on this earth. What could possibly calm my trembling heart when I have to stare death in the face? Nothing I bring or think, beg for or sacrifice or desire can stop death. But I don't have to. Christ's sacrifice pays for my death. I have no fear of death in Christ. I embrace it. For Jesus' sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Jesus proclaims in the gospel lesson for today, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And what is that good news? That God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not die, but have eternal life. Dear friends in Christ, the sacrificing has been done. Christ has won you the victory over your sin, your death. You will live forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. And now let us pray. The peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in and through Christ Jesus unto life everlasting. Amen. 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 All right. Rounding out our Pastor Cy Van Manen three-peat. <laughs> I think it was the first time we've done that. The last sermon here is entitled, The Reality of Death. Here we go. Grace and mercy and peace be unto you from God our Father, and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The text for today is from the Gospel of Mark, the 8th chapter, beginning at the 31st verse. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes, and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. This is the text. Please be seated. Dear friends, a devout believer in astrology, French King Louis XI, was deeply impressed when an astrologer correctly foretold that a lady of his court would die in eight days' time. And she did. The king decided that this astrologer was too accurate a prophet and should be disposed of, should be killed. The king summoned the astrologer to his apartments having first told his servants, when I give the signal, you throw him out the window. The astrologer entered the room, and when the king and his servants were there, the king said, you claim to understand astrology and to know the fate of others. The king said to this man, so tell me at once what your fate will be and how long you have to live. The astrologer answered, I will die just three days before you, your majesty. The shaken king canceled his plans. So if you knew the day and the time of your death, would you change anything about your life? 
If you knew you were going to die in 50 years, would you change anything? 50 years is a long time, so probably not. But what about 30? What about 10? What about one year? If you knew you had one year to live, you might change a few things. If you only had one year, you might try a few things. Maybe you would do new things. Some people might mope around for that year, but maybe you would try to do everything that you've always wanted to do in that year. Go on a cruise, buy a new car. Maybe go somewhere warm. Get in touch with old friends. Maybe make some new ones. Would you go on a spending spree? Would you make amends with people? If tomorrow was your last day, would you do anything different? Would you do something different today? Would you tell people? Would you try and outrun death? If you knew that tomorrow you were going to be in a terrible weed eater accident, would you avoid weed eaters all day and all day tomorrow? But if there's nothing you could do to stop it, if you knew tomorrow or today was your last day, would you bargain with God? Would you say to God, if you give me more time, I promise I will be better. I will love you more. I will love my neighbor more. I will love myself less. I'm going to make a prediction. You are going to die. The wages of sin is death, and we are sinners, and so death is also ours. But I don't know when. God does, but I don't know. And I know if I could know, I probably wouldn't want to know. If tomorrow was my last day, I know I wouldn't change anything. I know I couldn't change anything. Maybe I would plant that apple tree that I was going to plant. But I would not tell my wife because I wouldn't want her to spend her last 24 hours upset. Or if she got on the phone planning a party for the day after, I think that would be awkward as well. I would spend the night with my kids watching a movie like we always do or something like that. I would watch the sunrise. I would read the Bible. I would eat a ton of junk food because I wouldn't have to worry about losing the weight. I would not run from death, though, because there is nowhere to run. Death in this life is a guarantee, a 100% chance of it happening. And yet we rile against it. We fight it. We try to prevent it. We run away. But there is nowhere to go. Still, we do not desire death. We do not relish the idea of death. And if you knew the exact time and date probably wouldn't make it any easier. It would probably make it harder. In the text for today, we see Jesus, who knows all things, says that he is going to die. He tells his disciples that he is going to die. He told them he must suffer many things at the hands of the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the scribes, and he must be killed. Jesus knows he is going to be beaten and spit upon and whipped and mocked and have a crown of thorns pushed upon his brow. He is made, and he knows he's going to be made, to carry his own cross and finally be nailed to that cross through his hands and feet and suffocate to death while he hangs on it. He always knew this. Jesus says through the prophet Isaiah, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled up my beard. I do not hide my face from mocking or spitting. I have set my face like flint. Jesus is God. And he can do anything he wants. He could have chosen not to come in the flesh to avoid the pain, but that is not our God. He could have planned to die a less painful death. He could have turned those who beat him into toads. He could have walked away from death, but he did not because that is not our God. 
He not only knew the future, he planned his own death. He set his face like flint towards death. He knew it was going to be gruesome and painful and yet was determined to go through with it. Why? To pay for the sins of the world, yours and mine. He loves us so much that he did not flinch at his death, but went through what was painful torture and death for our sake so that we would have somewhere to turn in the face of death. For although physical death comes to us all, God offers us eternal life in his Son. He gives us somewhere to turn, not only in time of trouble, but in the hour of our death. A few days before his death, Dr. F.B. Meyer, a British Baptist minister, wrote to a very dear friend these words. I have just heard to my great surprise that I have but a few days to live. It may be that before this reaches you, I shall have entered the palace. Don't trouble to write. We shall meet in the morning. Death is not the extinguishing of the light of the Christian. It is putting out the lamp because the dawn has come. Our Lord Jesus Christ has given us light in the darkness of death with his promises. The promise of salvation unto life everlasting. His tomb was empty and so shall ours be. Because Christ died the death we deserved. We shall live to see his face. Each day, each new day for a Christian is a sunrise day. A day that even though death may come calling, it will never claim us. For we belong to Jesus. This day and every day, we belong through the waters of our baptism. If today is our day to pass from this life to the next, then rejoice. For the next life is the true life. Dear friends, your sins are forgiven in Christ. And for us to die is gain. For in death we shall pass from this life unto life everlasting. Thanks be to God. Amen. And now let us pray. The peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in and through Christ Jesus unto life everlasting. Amen. Amen. <laughs> That's what Christian preaching sounds like. Ah, oh, man, just good for the soul. And so comforting and so true. Mm, great job. All right, so what do you think? We're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.